Hello, my name is Mark Gibson, and you're listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost series, a weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and I'm very pleased to be speaking to you this morning about nitrogen and its interactions between soil and water. My name is Carl Richards, and I'm the head of the Environment, Soils and Land Use Department at Chagas Johnstown Castle. So before we get started, I'd like just to remind you of what you heard last week uh, from Jenny Deacon in the EPA. And here you'll see on the right hand side that Jenny or the EPA have highlighted areas that are at risk from nitrate. Um, and it's specifically that that risk increases as you move from northwest to southeast, as indicated by the, the darker colorations. Um, in relation to the, those areas in the southeast, um, the EPA have noted that there's been an increasing trend in nitrate concentrations um, at the catchment level, as indicated with the yellow uh, bar graph, um, as indicated here, and that those a lot of those uh, water bodies are in the south and east, and they have uh, eutrophic estuaries, as indicated by the red areas. Um, uh, where nitrogen has been highlighted as a particular issue to do with the to do with uh, water quality. So nitrate is a regional issue and it increases from northwest to southeast. And this is primarily due to free draining catchments in these areas. So the soils are free draining and therefore nitrate moves easily in those soils. And the reason for that is that nitrate isn't held in the soil as it's a negatively charged ion um, and it is uh, therefore easily lost to water. Um, water quality trends are also going in the wrong direction and this is really serious in that um, recent improvements up to 2012 um, were indicating agricultural intensification was being carried out in that was compatible with water quality but since then it, it, the indications are going in the wrong direction. So what contributes to nitrate loss to water? Well, I'd like to just take you through the different sources, uh, the source pathway receptor model that is often used in water quality. Um, and within that, the, what a source refers to in particular relation to nitrogen is sources of nitrogen. And that is fertilizer, manure, grazing, um, et cetera. Um, so those are all sources of nitrogen. Those can occur what we call point sources as indicated on the, the uh, diagram here and those are indicated by leaking point sources such as uh, slurry stores or oil tanks and things like that. You also have diffuse sources of pollution which generally comes from larger areas such as uh, grazed grasslands where grazing returns by animals, nitrogen fertilizer, manure management can be potential sources of, of uh, nitrogen. And then you talk also about non point sources or non-agricultural point sources, which here is indicated by a septic tank uh, coming from a, a house discharging uh, higher levels of nitrate to the water. So how does water or how does the nitrogen get from the, the source to the receptor? The receptor is the river or stream or groundwater body. Well, there are different pathways for that as indicated here. So this black arrow is indicating uh, a groundwater pathway where the nitrogen or the, and the water moves through the subsurface and then discharges into the river. This is generally the pathway for nitrate loss and it is a slower uh, pathway than overland flow which is the next pathway which moves across the land surface from an, an area of a nutrient source to a river. Um, these are, are rapid transport pathways and typically um, ammonium and phosphorus 
<coughs> would be the um, nutrients at risk of movement by overland flow. But you can also get both uh, pathways occurring, um, multiple nutrients being moved by each pathway. Um, so it does start to get compl complicated. Um, so as mentioned, the targets or the receptors are things like groundwater bodies, surface water bodies, wetlands, estuaries, and coastal waters, all of which are susceptible to nutrient input where it results in excessive algal growth and eutrophication. So if we were to think of the perfect recipe for nitrate leaching, what would that comprise of? So in order to have nitrate leaching, you have to have nitrate in the soil, and you also have to have water percolating through the soil profile. Um, I, without either one of these, you will not have nitrate leaching. So you can have nitrate in the soil where there's no water percolating through that soil, it can't be transported and lost to water. And vice versa, if there's no nitrate in the soil, even if you have water moving through it, the, there's no nitrogen available to be leached. And the nitrogen um, cycle is somewhat complicated, and this is a, a simplification of it, and I'll guide you through some of the key elements of that. So us as farmers, what do we do? We apply nitrogen and we apply that through fertilizer, manure, or it can be fixed via symbiotic uh, nitrogen fixation by legumes such as clover. And why do we do that? We do that to increase the inorganic pools of ammonium and nitrate in the soil. And these are the forms of nitrogen that are available for plants to uptake. And plants can uptake both ammonium and nitrate, um, not just nitrate. So why is nitrate a problem? Well, as I outlined previously, nitrate, which is one of the mineral forms of nitrogen in the soil, once it's in the nitrate form, it is susceptible or it can be lost to groundwater via leaching where water percolates through it. It's also subjective to, or subject to microbial processes called denitrification, which reduces the nitrate to nitrous oxide and then to gas. Nitrous oxide is a potent greenhouse gas, and N2 uh, nitrogen gas comprises 78% of the air that you breathe. Um, so it, it's in, in our interest to try and minimize the nitrate pool in the soil, to try and minimize our losses uh, of nitrogen to the environment. So how much nitrogen is acceptable? These are our levels that I received from the EPA when I asked them uh, what's acceptable. So in order to protect freshwater ecology, you need to keep the concentration below 1.8 milligrams per litre of nitrate nitrogen. Um, for ammonium, it's, the concentration is an awful lot lower and that's because ammonium is, 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 can be very toxic to uh, aquatic uh, life forms. And the phosphorus is even lower again. Um, to protect our estuaries and coasts, uh, the maximum concentration is 2.8 milligrams per litre of nitrogen, and that's either nitrate or ammonium or the two together. And that, that, that is uh, the point, the concentration at which the salinity of the water is, is zero. So this is the last fresh water sample before it starts to get into the estuary. Um, so that's a very low concentration. Traditionally, water quality has been related to the drinking water limit, and there, the, the EPA uses a mean concentration of eight and a half milligrams per litre expressed as nitrate nitrogen. But you also need to be aware sometimes people talk about nitrate on its own and not the limit for nitrate is 37.5 milligrams per litre of, of nitrate. So the 8.5 is equivalent to 37.5. So it's very important that you understand 
what form of nitrate you're referring to. In this presentation, I'm referring to nitrate nitrogen. The maximum concentration in drinking water is 11.3 milligrams per liter or 50 milligrams per liter as nitrate. That means if you get one sample above 11.3, you are in breach of the drinking water directive and you have supplied drinking water that is not fit for human consumption. Um, so that is a maximum concentration. It's not a mean concentration. Um, so what factors influence nitrate in the soil? Well, uh, the application rate of fertilizer or the amount of nitrogen that you put onto the soil is important. The timing of when you put that on is really important. The soil nutrient status, the crop type and the overwinter cover that you have are really important. I'm going to guide you through each of those now. So in terms of fertilizer application rate, what we find, this is some old research, but it's still very valid. This would be um, the uptake or grain yield um, on the y-axis and applied nitrogen on the x-axis. And this indicates that as you increase uh, nitrogen fertilizer, your yields increase. The red line as indicated here shows that as you increase nitrogen fertilizer rate, at about 160 kilograms per hectare of fertilizer, you start to see uh, an increase in the amount of nitrogen that's in the soil that's available to be leached. And there becomes an optimum there at which you get your maximum yield with the minimum amount of nitrogen in the soil available to be lost. And that's referred to as the N optimum. So as you increase above the N optimum, you the preferentially increase the amount of nitrogen that's going to be lost to the environment than what's going to go into your crop. And ultimately, a farmer is interested about maximizing their yields and minimizing their environmental impact. If we talk about a grass crop, um, there are two lines here. The green line indicates uh, the grass requirement for nitrogen in kilograms per hectare per day. And the red line indicates the amount of nitrogen that is, that is released from the soil through a process called mineralization. And depending on your soil type, soil nitrogen mineralization accounts for somewhere between 50 and 150 kilograms of N per hectare. And typically a grass requirement for nitrogen is somewhere around the 400 to 500 kilograms per hectare. The difference between what the soil releases and what the grass requires is referred to as our fertilizer nitrogen requirement. And this is where we, we provide farmers with fertilizer advice to make up the difference between the, what's released from the soil and what the grass requires. There are periods of time where, particularly in the early spring and in the later in the autumn, where soil nitrogen release exceeds the plant's requirement for nitrogen. And this, I suppose, is the foundation behind calendar farming and why there are limitations put on when you can apply chemical uh, fertilizer and also um, slurry to your soils, because you should only be applying nutrients to a crop that requires that nutrient, otherwise it's waste disposal. Um, so, and there are variations between years, there are variations between soils, but by and large, this pattern is, is, is uh, similar across the country. And so the effect of grazing on nitrate leaching. So why do we get nitrate leaching? Um, and that's generally because more nitrogen is applied to the soil than the crop can uptake. 
And within our grazing pastures, urine patches are the dominant source of uh, nitrate that is lost to water. And the reason for that is that they contain high nitrogen loadings. They've been reported up to a thousand kilograms of nitrogen per hectare equivalent in a urine patch. In Ireland, we uh, estimate the loads are more likely in the 300 to 500 kilograms of nitrogen per hectare. But that is a, a large amount of nitrogen applied in a very small area. And grass can uptake that nitrogen, but uh, it depends on the time of year of which it is deposited. Um, so at times, certain times of the year, there is, lim there is limits on how much can be uptaken. Urinations in autumn can increase uh, the risk of nitrate leaching. And that's because you're combining water movement in the soil with reducing uh, grass requirement for nitrogen, and you're applying a high load of nitrogen. Um, so measures to reduce nitrogen losses uh, stem around uh, either influencing the concentration of nitrogen in the urine, and you can do that through dietary manipulation and reducing nitrogen um, in the diet, um, in concentrates, etc. Or uh, basically controlling the number of urine patches in a hectare or in a field. And that can be done by manipulating stocking rate or manipulating the duration of which cows are in, are in a field. Um, further research that we've done has looked at uh, changing the timing, but also using nitrification inhibitors, which uh, reduce the buildup of nitrate in soil. So in terms of uh, some of our own research here, we've looked at um, leaching from three different soil types. Those soils are a Wexford Rathangan soil, which is a poorly drained soil, a Limerick Elton soil, which is a me medium to well-drained soil, and then a soil from Clonakilty, which is a, a well-drained soil. And what you, we can see is when we only look at fertilizer, the amount of nitrate that gets leached is generally low. Um, and there wasn't much difference between soil types in how much nitrogen was leached from just, that, just fertilizer applications over a grazing year. As we start to then look at urine patches deposited during the summer, the spring and the summer period, um, which also received fertilizer, you can see that there wasn't a significant difference in the leaching from uh, spring and summer applied urine. But as we move into the autumn, you can see the amount of uh, nitrogen leaching that uh, comes from urine patches increases as we move from September into November. And you can, we can also see a very significant effect of soil type where the amount of nitrate leached from the, the most well-drained soil was significantly higher than the other soil types. So th th this is again a clear indication of um, nitrogen and excess of plant requirements being deposited on the soil. In terms of is there a relationship between stocking rate and nitrate leaching and um, further research that we published from Grange under uh, an intensive beef uh, system with Michael Drennan indicated that uh, the blue line shows the mean nitrate concentrations over three different years. Um, on what we call an intensive uh, conventional system, which was stocked at 210 kilograms per hectare of organic N, so a, a derogation level uh, beef farm, versus a reps beef farm, which was stocked at two livestock units or 170 kilograms of organic N per hectare and was receiving, I think it was uh, 80 or 85 kilograms of nitrogen fertilizer. 
compared to the 210 kilogram of organic N, which received, uh, I think it's about 200 kilograms of fertilizer nitrogen. Um, so what we can see is there was significantly lower nitrate leaching on the reps grazing system than the very intensive grazing system. And we can also see that there was significant between year differences as well. In year one, the losses between the two systems were not significantly different, but the differences uh, appeared in years two and years three. And that, that, that's quite often seen in um, nitrate leaching studies is this interannual variation. And I'll touch on, touch on that later in the presentation. Um, this is some work from uh, Curtin's farm, uh, one of the Moore Park farms, uh, published a, a number of years ago where they investigated um, three different stocking rates of 210, 250 and 280 kilograms of organic N per hectare. And they looked at nitrate leaching at one meter below ground level. So this isn't nitrate in groundwater, this is nitrate in the soil that's still being moved or still percolating towards groundwater. And on, on average, what they found is the, the concentrations were, were significantly higher than the drinking water standard and, and higher than the environmental uh, standards that I mentioned earlier. Um, but they also found that there wasn't a significant relationship between the stocking rate and the, the rate of nitrate leaching either. Crop type and soil type all have an effect on, um, on nitrate leaching and in particular on, I suppose, the, how much nitrogen ends up going into the crop. Grassland typically has a longer growing season than most crops and therefore generally has a high, higher rates of nitrogen uptake and a longer uh, duration of nitrogen uptake. When we look at some of our cropping systems, spring cropping systems have a very short, confined growing period between spring and, and harvest in, in August or early September. Um, so they have a very short period of time to uptake their nutrients and winter crops have a, a, an ability to uptake nitrogen from the autumn through the winter into the spring as well. So they have a longer period of uh, nitrogen uptake. So when we look at that in, in terms of our nitrogen uh, dynamics in, in the cropping system, particularly a spring system like this, the top graph here shows nitrogen uptake between when we sow, sow the crop and when we harvest it. And then when we look at the, the nitrogen released from the soil, we can see that, that there's a period of time where there's no crop growing and there's still nitrogen being released from the soil and there's still nitrogen in the soil after the crop as well. And where there's nothing growing on that soil, that nitrogen is available to be lost to, uh, to groundwater and, and impact on water quality. Um, and one way of addressing that is by ensuring that you have something growing over the winter. And this is really important from a carbon perspective, a water quality perspective, and a soil fertility perspective in that you're capturing nutrients and organic matter and reintroducing that into the soil. Here's an example of a mustard cover crop that, that we were uh, investigating in Chagas Oak Park um, in a long-term study there with Richie Hackett. Um, the results of that study I'm showing in the next graph that's been published in a number of papers. Um, so what we see here is um, on the y-axis we have the average soil solution nitrate concentration. So that's at one meter below ground level. So it's not in the groundwater, it's, it's in the soil still percolating towards groundwater. On the y-axis, we see the, the, the different years of our study. So this was carried out over a six-year period. 
Um, we had a number of treatments. The green line, uh, or I'm sorry, we'll start with the blue line. The blue line indicates a standard um, spring barley system where either the solid line shows where we had um, sort of reduced tillage or the dotted line is where we had conventional plowing. And what you'll see there is there was no significant effect of, of reduced tillage versus plowing on nitrate leaching. But when we introduce a cover crop, which are the green lines, we can see that we dramatically reduce the concentrations of nitrate in the soil solution over the winter period. Um, and that's, that's significant because um, it reduces how much nitrogen is actually being lost to the environment. But one of the, the big things we took from this as well is that there's a huge inter-year variation. So this study was carried over six years. It had spring barley grown every year. It had the same level of nitrogen fertilizer applied every year. The only things that different, differed were the weather conditions. And those weather conditions can impact the growth of the spring barley, but more importantly, they influence when leaching occurs and how much water percolates through the soil. Um, we followed that up with a little bit more uh, investigation. And this graph here is a little bit complicated and apologies for that. Um, on the y-axis, we have our predicted soil solution concentration. So this is where we've developed a model and that model used rainfall and soil moisture deficit as the main factors in the model. And this model explained about 60 to 70% of the variation in our nitrate data. So based on knowing the rainfall amount, so as, as um, rainfall increased or decreased and soil moisture decreased, we got soil moisture deficit increased and rainfall decreased, we got a significant increase in nitrate concentrations in the soil solution. And this is independent of anything that a farmer can do. So weather has a huge impact on concentrations and of loads being lost from the soil. Now, if we move away from the sources of nitrogen to the pathway factors, so this is the factors that affect um, the movement of that nitrate. Um, I've already started to, to outline the importance of rainfall. And that's both the quantity and the distribution of the rainfall over a year. Effective rainfall, um, and so what I mean by effective rainfall, that is the amount of rainfall minus the amount of evapotranspiration. So typically in Ireland, we have a, between 500 and 600 millimeters of, evap of evapotranspiration, which is moisture returned to the air by the growing plants. Um, and if our average rainfall is somewhere around 1100 millimetres of rain, therefore we've got somewhere around um, 500 to 600 millimetres of effective rainfall. And that basically dilutes uh, and transports the nitrate through the soil. Soil type is also important because it controls the, the amount of oxygen in the soil and that, uh, that has an effect on how much denitrification or how much of that nitrate can be reduced to gaseous forms. Um, the depth of, a, of the soil and subsoil are really important because that determines how, how quickly um, the nitrate can be lost to water um, and it also influences the oxygen status uh, in the subsurface as well. So this is uh, a typical um, uh, water balance model for Johnstown Castle and you can see here on the y-axis we have monthly rainfall and evapotranspiration in millimeters per month and on the x-axis we have the, the month of the year 
And what we see in January is typically evapotranspiration, which is the dotted line, is generally low and um, because grass growth is generally low and rainfall is high. So the difference between the two is how much effective rainfall there is, as indicated by the, the shaded uh, high risk area. So you can see generally that is a high risk time period because you have water moving through the soil and you have uh, not a huge amount of plant growth at that time period. As we move into April and into May, typically evapotranspiration exceeds rainfall, which means the soil starts to dry out. Um, and that's what we term soil moisture deficit. And that builds over, typically over the summer period um, until a time point of which evapotranspiration decreases below rainfall. And typically that happens somewhere between um, sort of August and November, depending on the particular time of the year. Um, and then as we move into the autumn, before water can typically move in a soil, you have to return the, the soil to field capacity, which means that soil moisture deficit needs to be filled with the incoming rainfall. And that's indicated here from September onwards, where you see rainfall is higher than evapotranspiration, but there's a white period of time which is not indicated as high risk. And the reason for that is the soil is still wetting up and you don't have uh, moisture actively moving through through the, the soil. So that's on average, but every year is different. If we look back to 2012, uh, where we had leaching events occurring during the summer, we had animals in yards because of very poor summer uh, weather conditions. And then we look at 2018, where the soil moisture deficit continued well into the autumn, autumn period. So th there's definitely uh, both regional and interannual variation that we see in this in, in, in relation to um, soil moisture deficit. We did a little bit of work then using some long-term trends that we published in the paper Schulte et al back in 2006. And within this, we, we plotted the monthly effect of rainfall. So this is the amount of water that can, can move through the soil. Um, there's two of the synoptic stations here, Bell Mullet and Kilkenny. And what you'll see in Bell Mullet, you know, typically every month of the year, there was some moisture moving through the soil. Um, up to 100 millimetres in some months and then reducing down in the summer period. Whereas in contrast in Kilkenny, you can see as you got to month six, so June, month seven, July, you had very, you know, there typically wasn't any moisture moving through the soil and that's because soil moisture deficits built up. And there, that, that has an impact because where you have moisture moving through a soil, it transports nutrients with it and um, where they're available to be lost in the soil. So you can see in Bell Mullet, the pathway occurs a lot more often um, and the pathway is occurring to a larger extent than in Kilkenny. You also see that the, the, if you take the total volume of effective rainfall in Bell Mullet, um, and I don't know off the top of my head here, but I, I'm guessing it's somewhere maybe seven, 800 millimetres, um, and compared that to Kilkenny, which is probably more likely 200, 250 millimetres of effect on rainfall, this has a huge effect on the concentration of nitrate that gets leached because you take a, a given uh, mass of nitrogen to be leached, say 50 kilograms, you dilute that either in seven or 800 millimeters of rainfall or 200 millimeters of rainfall. It's gonna have a fourfold effect on the concentrations that you see. And I'm, I highlight that in the next, in the next graph. Um, so on the y-axis, we have the mean concentration um, if 50 kilograms of nitrogen per hectare were leached. So if a whole bag of fertilizer per hectare was leached out of the soil, 
and these would be the relevant concentrations that you would you would uh, potentially observe where on the x-axis we have effective rainfall which changes from 250 millimeters which would be typical in the southeast to 500 millimeters um, which would be more sort of the Cork region and then increasing to 750 and 1000 millimeters which would be more like in the west of Ireland. And what you can see on that line is there's a dramatic reduction in the concentration, the predicted concentration as you increase effective rainfall. So this also influences the concentrations that are seen in the environment. And as I mentioned in the southeast, uh, as indicated in the previous slide, conditions are, are, are a lot drier. Um, so in terms of soil type, soil type is important. Um, reason for this a lot of the time is due to water holding capacity. And I know I'm running out of time now. Um, here's a couple of typical soil profiles you might see in the country. You've heard these two soils already, Rathangan, the, the poorly drained Wexford soil. You can see there's grey mottling in it, indicating um, areas of, of uh, anaerobic zones due to uh, water uh, re reducing conditions, reducing the iron from its oxic state to its reduced state, which uh, is the grey colour. And then you've got a really nice free draining soil from Clamacilty, as you can see from those deep brown colours all the way down the profile. Um, why is water holding capacity so important? Um, on the y-axis here we have the depth, the depth that nitrate could leach and we have three different soil types. For a given level of effective rainfall, here it's 100 millimetres, on a sandy soil we predict that that would leach to 450 millimetres or nearly half a metre below ground level. On a loam soil that would be 300 millimetres and on a heavy clay soil that would be more like 200 millimetres below the ground. So for a given level of, of uh, rainfall, uh, you can have nitrate pushed through the soil to different depths depending on the soil type that you have. And that, that's really important because the speed of that movement um, influences the ability of the crop to uptake the nitrogen, but also influences the process of denitrification. So the longer the nitrate or the nitrogen is in the soil, the more likely it is to be reduced to nitrogen gas. Water table is also important. Um, shallow water tables um, would be typically seen, would typically have runoff and denitrification because they would be uh, typically wet soils, whereas deeper water tables have longer travel times and there is some potential for attenuation. Um, where we insert artificial drainage into soils, we speed up the delivery of water to surface waters and that can result in increases in nitrate and ammonium and phosphorus in, in those surface waters. And wet soils with high water tables can be easily identified, you know, with grey mottling, etc. And most farmers will know those anyway. Um, I'm going to skip these uh, and get to my final couple of slides. The Agricultural Catchments Programme has been running since 2008, uh, 2009. And over the 10 years of monitoring so far, uh, this is, I suppose, the summary of what it's been finding. And if we look at the, the nitrate nitrogen, which is the middle, the middle bar below the photographs of each of the catchments, you'll see an indication of what the mean concentration over that period was. And you can see in the northwest and the north that typically uh, the concentrations were below two milligrams per litre. So good from an environmental perspective. And as we move down into Louth on the east coast, the northeast, you can see the nitrates are quite high. And again, that's an, an arable. Uh, catchment and again that's where you have uh, land use effects 
uh, impacting on nitrogen availability. And as we move down the East Coast into Wexford, and um, you can see that there, there are two catchments. One is a poorly drained catchment, and the nitrate concentrations are below two and a half milligrams per litre. And then we have an arable catchment, and the nitrate concentrations are just below seven milligrams per litre. So again, indicating both the effect of land use and the effect of soil type. And then as we move west to, to Timaleague, um, we can see that the nitrate levels there are, are closer to five and a half to six milligrams per litre. And again, from an environmental perspective, you know, the, the levels in the south and southeast um, are breaching what the ecological standards are. And, that's, and, and that reflects both changes in management practices and land use and the intensity of those and the soil types. And that, that directly relates back to the, the initial slide from the EPA indicating areas at risk from nitrate leaching. So to summarize, Mark, um, you know, in terms of the source pressure, so there, we need to balance nutrient supply to crop demand. And as I said, David Wall will go into that in a lot more detail on the 26th of June. We need to avoid autumn and winter applications or applications where rainfall is, a, is greater than evapotranspiration. So we need to be careful when water is moving through the soil in terms of you know, little and often type approach can help to reduce the amount of, of nitrogen or nitrate that gets leached. Um, there, I'm gonna skip, so dirt, there are other sources of nutrients on farms and particularly dirty water or soiled water is one to be careful with because there you're applying uh, water and nitrogen at the same time. So when you over apply that, it can result in nitrate leaching uh, directly. Um, ploughing of grassland or, or any events like that, where you do that event in the springtime, you get lower nitrogen losses than when you do it in the autumn time. And again, that relates to the pathway being in operation in, in the autumn time and less so in the springtime. And oh, in cropping systems, particularly spring cropping systems, overwinter cover is particularly important to reduce nitrate leaching. In terms of the pathway then, timing of leaching varies nationally, and I would say it varies within catchments as well, um, based on both the, the localized hydrology and the soil conditions. Anaerobic or wet conditions lead to denitrification and reduce nitrate leaching, but result in greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and where we have soils with low water holding capacities, uh, this increases the depth of to which nitrate can be leached in the soil. So again, that, these are soils that we need to be uh, careful on in terms of, uh, I suppose, applying nitrogen uh, relating to the timings of, of when pathway occurs. And catchment hydrology, the, the, the overarching findings from the agricultural catchments program is catchment hydrology is king in terms of uh, soil type and uh, influencing how much nitrate can be leached. Uh, within those catchments. So uh, that, that's, that's me, Mark. Um, happy to take some questions. I think there's probably some there. Um, that's great, Carl. Thank you so much for that. That was um, a lot of information <laughs> in a short period of time. Um, I think uh, a few of our viewers were a little overwhelmed with some of the graphs that you presented. But uh, I know, look, today is about really, I suppose, scene setting for the, the following conversations that we're going to have with Karen next week and with uh, David then the following weeks as well. Um, Carl, I mean, you, you talked about the complexity of the, the nitrogen cycle and um, 
I suppose the complexity associated then that with soil moisture deficits, um, you know, on the ground for farmers making decisions around uh, nitrogen application, um, you know, are there any decision support tools or rules of thumb there when it comes to actually identifying safe periods for, for spreading um, or indeed grazing? Yeah, so, you know, I think there's a, there was a recognition a couple of years ago in the 2018 drought that we, that we really needed to um, improve our communication to farmers and to bear in mind the reduced uh, requirements of, uh, of uh, grass growth. So there is a working group in Chagask that is dealing with soil moisture deficit and how much nitrogen should be applied and when it should be applied. And a lot of that advice has been communicated through Grass 10 at the moment uh, with our colleagues in Moorpark who are running pasture base. Um, and it is an active area and it's, I think it's an area that we need some decision support tools. Um, you know, the, the fertilizer planner within nutrient management planning online will help, but that, that won't, I suppose, tailor it towards um, regional um, and field to field variations because every farm is going to have a wet field where the grass is probably still hopping out of the ground and they're going to have a very dry field where it's barely growing so you know measuring grass measuring what's happening on their farm is really important for farmers and then to tailor their management practices to what they see is really important and I suppose the bottom line of what we're trying to get across is think about what you're doing if the grass isn't growing, it doesn't need nitrogen. And if there is nitrogen in the soil already, it's not going anywhere. It's still there and it'll be there when the rainfall hits. And even when the rainfall hits, it's like that pool is likely to increase through soil mineralization. Um, so you may not require the full nitrogen requirement after that rewetting event. Carl, you're, I'm, I'm going to ask you a, a maybe more challenging question. You're responsible for the research in relation to, to water quality, but also climate change. Mm -hmm. You mentioned a couple of measures there in relation to uh, avoiding riskier periods at the end of the year. Um, and you also mentioned, uh, I can't recall now what the other uh, measure, but there, were, there are some measures within the climate, uh, the marginal abatement cost curve, such as extended grazing, yeah. Um, that would suggest, uh, are some some people would say, well, is is there a potential conflict there, um, or are we? How are we managing those those that that potential issue of pollution swapping, as we we sometimes call it? Yeah. Um, so it is as you get into autumn grazing, there's a number of factors happening. So. Typically, when we graze in the autumn, our ammonia emissions are reduced dramatically compared to when animals are in a, in a farmyard. So the first thing is we're reducing ammonia emissions by extending the grazing season. And we're also reducing the amount of, uh, I suppose, purchase feed that is required. Also, as we move into the autumn, um, stocking rates typically reduce. So even if you have a high rate of leaching from a single urine patch, if you have fewer urine patches in the field, that will reduce the overall leaching. So there are grazing management practices that I suppose help to uh, mitigate some of the effects that you might see. Um, we've done a lot of work in the past on things like nitrification inhibitors, and we know they work. They dramatically reduce both leaching and greenhouse gases, but at the moment they're they're not acceptable from a from a public perspective or from a cost perspective, but they're incredibly effective. Um, and there's probably more work we can do in terms of uh, animal dietary manipulation at that time in terms of trying to reduce nitrogen intake, because we know also uh, 
as we reduce nitrogen intake, the amount of nitrogen excretion reduces as well. Mm -hmm. So there's quite a number of interacting things that can be done at, at that time of the year. We have um, lots of excellent questions coming through here. And today we have nearly 400 people watching us today. So uh, it's great to have so many people uh, joining, joining us today. Pat, uh, do you want to kick off some of the, the questions? Yeah, no, there's a, a few, and I think there's, there's been quite a few questions about that, that autumn uh, management issue. There's one there as well about uh, ploughing in, in, in the autumn and, and uh, whether or not that's something that should be advised against at this point. So some of the research we would have uh, observed in the past is as we, again, it all depends on the growing conditions after you reseed your pasture. If you've good growing conditions afterwards, it will uptake the nitrogen that you release from ploughing. If you've poor growing conditions after ploughing, um, whether that's in the autumn or the spring, you're going to have higher losses. Um, the, the advice would be to, to do that ploughing event in the spring rather than the autumn because you're, you're giving a much better chance for your, your pasture to establish. Um, but that has practical implications for, for a farmer on uh, managing his grass availability as well. So there's a lot of interacting uh, factors there. Yeah, and another question there, it's uh, saying there appears to be a balance between nitrogen emissions and leaching losses. Uh, where does protected urea fit in in this scenario? Okay, it's a good question. So what, what we observe when we look at the soil nitrogen pools, that ammonium and nitrate pool in the soil, under protected urea, we see that the nitrate pool is very stable and is, is low compared to when we look at calcium ammonium nitrate, the nitrate pool in the soil is much higher and it's very episodic or it changes rapidly in relation to fertilizer events. So you would predict that nitrate leaching from protected urea should be lower. Uh, we did a grazing study on that and we didn't find any significant difference in, in the levels of, of leaching between both. Um, and the reason for that is it was a grazing study and the, the variability that you observe is quite high. But from a soil pool perspective, there's less nitrate in the soil pool and that's why you get lower nitrous oxide emissions and therefore you should get lower nitrate leaching as well. Okay, uh, a question there in terms of uh, the cover crops. Uh, what's your view of cover crops being grazed by animals across the winter? Again, there's a balance there of, I suppose, between the urine patches going back on um, and how much nitrate could be leached from them. It depends on the soil type and it depends on how much rainfall there is. So in, certain, in some areas, it's probably perfectly fine and isn't having an impact. It's not something that we've looked at. Um, so I'm sort of talking a bit hypothetically. Um, and it's going to depend on exactly how many, you know, urine patches, etc. there are. If you wanted to reduce the losses, you could cut it and bring it into the, to the yard for the animals, but that increases expense. Um, so I'd say on, on drier soils, you know, you're going to potentially increase nitrate leaching, but it is something that needs more, more research. And a question here is, has there been any work done on the effect of diet on uh, urine con uh, uh, content? There, there has, and again, colleagues in Moorpark are, are, are have a model there uh, which relates um, diet, animal diet with then excretion. 
Um, and we can see it from the likes of pigs as well. As we reduce the amino acids in the diet, the amount of nitrate that gets excreted decreases. And that's one of the, the measures in the MAC as well. And one of the measures in the MAC as well is reducing crude protein in, in concentrated feeds. And the effect of that is reducing N excretion. Um, so, it, and again, we do have very strong science relating the concentration of urine to both uh, nitrous oxide and nitrate leaching. So uh, it is something that we'll be able to model in the future. Carl, we have a question here in relation to, um, you know, we know that there's regulations around slurry spreading and farmyard manure spreading during the autumn period or winter period. Um, question here is that, you know, should the turning out of livestock uh, be regulated? given the, the figures that you've mentioned there? Again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't get caught. The figures I'm talking about are a, a urine patch. They're urine patch scale. They're not at a field scale or a catchment scale. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't think that, you know, what we are promoting is extended grazing. Um, and, you know, there are other tools that you can use instead of twice a day grazing or, intent, you know, you can reduce the period of which the animal is at pasture. Um, so where there's twice a day milking, you know, research from Moor Park would indicate that the animals can ingest a lot of their, uh, a lot of their uh, feed during the period between morning, morning and afternoon grazing. So if they're only out for a period of five or six hours, it reduces, you know, the number of urine patches by 75%. You basically, it's directly related to the time of pasture. So there are grazing management practices that could be carried out and are carried out that will reduce the number of urine patches. And as I also said, stocking rates typically reduce as you move into the autumn as well. So they, you know, they might graze one paddock and they might not graze that paddock again until springtime. So it's not that simple. A, a good number of questions coming in about January and February in terms of, of nitrogen application and, and advice uh, in relation to it. Yeah, so again, I know David's going to go into that in a lot of detail. I'll just go back to what I said before. It all depends on your, on your crop growth. If the crop is on a dry soil in that period of February and March or late January, February and March, if it's on a dry soil, um, the temperature conditions are right, the moisture conditions are right, and the crop is growing, then it requires nutrients. If the soil is wet and cold and the grass isn't growing, it doesn't require nutrients. So again, it's down to farmers walking their farms. They'll know the fields that, that get early grass, they'll know the fields that do not, and it's to tailor their practices accordingly. Um, at that time of the year, using your manure is a really good idea. There is a, obviously a lot of nitrogen in it and, we will, and you will reduce your ammonia emissions at that time of the year as well. So again, it's around judicious um, precision management around fertilizers at those riskier times of the year, be it the spring or this can, this can happen in a wet summer. We remember back to 2012 when we're feeding silage in the middle of the summer and animals were brought in. So like, you know, farmers do recognize when their fields are being impacted unduly by weather and they usually uh, adapt their management practices accordingly. Carl, we have a question here in relation to, I suppose, the future uh, of weather patterns in Ireland. Uh, climate change models are suggesting increased rainfall in the winter, more intense um, rainfall periods and more droughts during the summer. And um, you know, so 
We've substantial variations across the country in soil type and, and weather conditions. Um, so the question here is, do we have an estimate of land area where intensive production is possible, or do we need more specific advice related to land carrying capacity rather than uh, general messages? So is this, this does come back yeah. to the, 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 the age old question of land use planning, which uh, is a controversial area. Yeah, and like I would argue as well, like you've got parts of the west of Ireland where the soils are free draining um, and have a, a good carrying capacity. So it, it's, it's not just regional differences, it's within farm. You know, you feel, as I said, there's the dry field and there's the wet field and the farmers do know where those are. Um, I think we do need to address um, climate adaptation further. And it's something that we are looking to some extent in Johnstown Castle with the inclusion of uh, multi-species swords where we have deeper rooting species um, to help us, particularly in drought conditions, to, uh, avail of moisture deeper in the soil profile. And we have a dairy systems experiment underway there in Johnstown Castle. And uh, there is a reciprocal one on Curtin's farm as well. So we're able to look at the, the effect of that across two different soil types. And both of those systems are at significantly reduced nitrogen levels. Uh, they've reduced by, I think, 100 to 150 kilograms per hectare. So the end rates being applied are somewhere between 100 and 150 kilograms per hectare. Um, running a, a high, a high uh, sort of stocking rate dairy system on. Okay, thanks for that, Carl. Uh, the kind of a, 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 an interesting question, uh, kind of indicating our efficiency of use of nitrogen being about 25%, but how much of the remainder uh, of the nitrogen is in an environmentally, or is lost in an environmentally damaging way? Yeah, it's... That is a really difficult question to answer because it is soil type specific. Recent research that we published in one of the nature journals, um, we identified a new pathway where nitrogen um, is reduced to N2 um, without nitrous oxide. So this is a process uh, called co-denitrification. That was the dominant uh, nitrogen loss pathway and it resulted in N2 going back to back to the air. So when you look at those excesses, you're building up nitrogen in your organic matter pool every year. I mentioned there's a release of between 50 and 150 kilograms per hectare in mineralization, but there's going to be a reciprocal immobilization of nitrogen as well, and it could be even greater than that. Um, so the, the, the two big unknowns around nitrogen surpluses are how much nitrogen went off as N2 gas and how much nitrogen get, got immobilized back into the soil organic matter pool, um, which is increasing. Um, so it, it is, there's no, can't give a simple answer to that. And it is gonna to relate to soil type. And that, that work has been shown in, in the Netherlands as well, where you can't just take simply a, a nitrogen surplus and predict groundwater nitrate concentrations from that. It just doesn't work. Okay, uh, a question in, or a couple of questions in relation to multi-species swords uh, and I suppose it's recognised that uh, because of deep rooting they have an impact in terms of, of drought uh, uh, resistance but there's a, 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 I suppose a corollary question is do, does that have an impact in terms of taking up uh, nitrogen maybe from a lower level within the, the, the soil and reducing uh, uh, nit or nit uh, nitrate losses as a yeah. result from that. Exactly. So, you know, mo most of our perennial ryegrass swords 
have rooting depths. If you just look at the main roots are in the top 20 centimeters. There might be roots below that, but it's typically pretty shallow. So once water has gone past that depth and there's nitrate in it, the plants can, can't access it. So if you have a deeper rooting species, such as plantain or chicory, you know, or deeper rooting grass species, then they are able to access both nitrogen and moisture deeper in the soil profile, but other minerals as well, um, phosphorus and, and other, I suppose, micronutrients too. Um, so they, they could potentially reduce uh, leaching as well as greenhouse gases and enhance carbon sequestration. And there's one other aspect uh, in terms of plantain. So plantago, it has been linked to um, increasing biological nitrification inhibition. So what that means is um, people, particularly in New Zealand, have observed lower, lower amounts of nitrate leaching uh, coming from uh, swords that have plantain in it. Um, and that's because it affects the microbial community in the soil um, to, to reduce the bacteria that um, basically oxidize ammonium to nitrate. A question here, uh, is there a case for reviewing advice on, on maximum nitrogen rate in any given application split to reduce the risk of leaching, especially given the more volatile uh, nature of rainfall patterns? Absolutely, so if we go back to that, grass growth requirements and um, that's what our, our, our I suppose monthly fertilizer plan has done in the past and continues to do and that's been further refined now with Pasture Base Ireland where we can uh, look at the current grass growth and the predicted grass growth conditions over the next 10 days. Um, so we are actively doing that in Chagask at the moment and providing that advice to our clients through, through uh, Grass 10 and Pasture Base Ireland. We have a question here in relation to the ASA program, and maybe Pat, you might want to come in on this this as well. Uh, I know it's early days yet, but uh, any are there any insights onto what uh, was making a big difference in those catchments to reduce nitrate leaching, and any practices that farmers struggled to implement in ASAP? But maybe I suppose that question could also be extended to the the catchments program. Um, any comments on that? So like I suppose the overarching comment would be the more engagement a farmer has with an advisor, the more likely they are to modify decisions that they're going to make. Um, so where they've got good advice, it's coming to them in a timely manner. It gives them the ability to make decisions. And I suppose a lot of the time farmers, you know, were their time time starved, time isn't something that they have. So when somebody can really help them quickly to make decisions, then it has a very positive effect. Um, and also just the, the pure raising of awareness around um, particular issues puts that more in, in a farmer's mind in terms of when they are going out to say spread manure, for example, or spread fertilizer. Um, so I think I'm not sure and I haven't seen the, the exact uh, improvement results uh, from ASAP. I know Jenny mentioned it briefly last week, but I would expect, you know, alongside with the agricultural catchments program, it's about co-generation of ideas with the farmers. So farmers know their systems and their farms the best and working with a professional to to modify what they're doing or to enhance aspects of things that are going well already um, has real dividends and then sharing those experiences across with other farmers in their catchment is, is really important. Pat, do you have any comments on that? Yeah, I think one of the, the, the things and it's, it's really what today's uh, webinar is all about is trying to improve the understanding 
of the situations where there's risk of, of, of loss. And I think that's what really Carl has, has outlined for us today, that there are periods of the year that there's significant loss and practices at those times of the year on farms are absolutely key to, to, to reducing. And that's been the message I think that advisors have been bringing to, to, to farmers in terms of trying to, to reduce losses to water in those nitrogen uh, sensitive uh, areas. And I think today is, is uh, I, I suppose, a ramping up of that uh, to try and get all professionals uh, working with farmers, all advisors working with farmers to have a full understanding of those risky periods and how that should impact on, on uh, fertilizer and uh, I suppose organic fertilizer advice. Yeah, so well, look, I suppose there's some questions about the level of which the presentation has been pitched. Um, you know, my I was pitching this at pro, sort of ag professionals who have some basic understanding of, of uh, the, the area. I wanted to highlight what are the factors that influence uh, nitrate and nitrate loss to, to water. Um, the, and that's primarily soil type and meteorology, um, and then the land use and farming practices as well. On the 26th of June, David Wall is going to go through some of those, that practical advice around how can you tailor um, the, the balance between what a crop needs to grow and what could be potentially lost to the environment. And it, it's complicated, it's complex, um, and it, it does require timely advice, and it requires farmers to be aware of the situation on their farm. No farmer wants to spend money on fertilizer that goes down the drain and into a river. That's a waste of money. That's not what they want to do. Where there is uncertainty is how much does a crop require at a specific time and how much is in the soil. And if we can improve the answers to those two questions, you will have much better precision fertilizer advice uh, to farmers in, in a timely way. So that, that's what we're aiming towards and that's what all our research is working towards. The, your, your paper and your, the research is suggesting that, look, we have huge heterogeneity in soil type, uh, weather conditions across the country. Um, the, the day of giving generic advice and generic stocking rates, recommendations, uh, what do you see happening over the next number of years in terms of policy or in terms of schemes uh, or what would you like to see? Well, I suppose from what we're trying to do in Chagask, between ourselves in Johnstown Castle and our colleagues in Moor Park, through Nutrient Management Planning Online and Pasture Base Ireland, is to provide farmers with the decision supports for their specific farm of what to do, when to do it for their particular system. Um, and all of our research is going into that, be it use of new sensors, new technologies, new ways of analyzing data. Um, so that's what we're moving towards, a time period where you might imagine an automated fertilizer spreader. You know, it might happen. We're talking about automated trucks in 20 years time, delivering things around the country. If we had an automated tractor that was hooked up to this system and had fertilizer on the back of it, it would drive past some fields and not go into them. And it would go into certain fields and target them with either fertilizer or with manure, or it might be modifying the plant species or the sward composition in a particular field. So we need to move from, as we said, applied 
150 kilograms per hectare per year to apply 10 kilograms in February, 30 in March, et cetera, et cetera, to this is what you require on that field at this particular moment in time based on the current grass growing conditions. So how, how, how far away do you think we are, Carl, from having a situation where farmers themselves could have these sensors in their fields for detecting uh, nitrate losses? Uh, we know that there's a lot of work going into these remote sensors that are uh, have battery life for three years and can be linked into to the uh, to the internet. Yeah, so again, the part of Vista Milk um, uh, is starting to look at that, particularly around uh, improving the precision around uh, grass growth predictions. Um, better, you know, we don't even need to be able to sense, you know, and there are sensors for nitrate um, and there are sensors for water. If we can combine the two, you can have much more precise management uh, recommendations for both leaching and greenhouse gas emissions and for crop growth. So as I said, the, the, the idea here is to make sure there's enough feed produced on a farm to, to feed the animals on that farm. Um, there was a comment earlier about nitrogen use efficiency being 25%. We're not worse than any other country in the world. Um, when you look at the Netherlands, there's figures often quoted of 37 or 40%. The only reason they are higher is they have externalized their feed production. So the feed is produced somewhere else and they've often externalized their manure management. So the manure is spread somewhere else. So all the losses associated with producing the feed and managing the manure are not accounted for in their balance. And a recent paper we published this year, um, I suppose modified the way of, of calculating uh, nitrogen balances and there we're pretty much the same as most other countries. And when we look at the NFS, there's a large range of nitrogen use efficiencies within the NFS from much higher to much lower. So there, there's obviously things that farmers are doing to improve that, that other farmers at the lower end can learn from and, and uh, modify their practices. And the main one there is tailoring fertilizer. Carl, um, we're, time has caught up on us again. And I don't know where that hour went. Thank you so much for Excellent presentation and uh, uh, answering some of those uh, tricky questions uh, coming through there. Some really excellent questions coming through from our viewers today. Uh, Pat, thanks for uh, helping with the question today and, of course, your, your oversight of, of this program. Um, and I want to also thank Andy Boland and Yvonne Maher uh, in the background, our production team, who are helping uh, make all of this happen. Of course, our partners uh, who are supporting uh, the series. Uh, before uh, we go, I just want to uh, bring your attention to uh, other uh, webinars that, that Chagas is running at, at the moment. Uh, there's a dairy webinar that goes out on Thursday mornings. There's a cattle and sheep one. And so you can find all of those on the Chagas website. Uh, and there's a specific dairy research one uh, that has just started this week, um, and that uh, it goes out on uh, Wednesdays, I think it is, uh, Wednesday mornings at 9.30. Uh, so do check out uh, those other uh, webinars that are available on the Chagisk uh, website. Uh, next week, we'll be talking to Dr. Karen Daly from Chagisk in Johnstown Castle about phosphorus and its interactions with soil and water. So I hope you do join us next week for our next uh, for our webinar next week so until then have a, a nice weekend and uh, stay safe you've been listening to the podcast version of the chagisk signpost series 
the weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Don't forget to join us live every Friday morning for our latest webinar. For more, visit chagisk.ie. And you can also rate, review and subscribe to the Signpost series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Mark Gibson and thanks for listening.